Thank you. Uh, we'll be in Psalm 119 again um, this afternoon. Uh, let's pray. Let's pray together and ask the Lord's help. Open up our hearts. Father, we do. We're going to spend some time in your word. We're going to preach from Psalm 119. Uh, but we recognize before we start in yet again our dependence, our need. And as we've been studying, Lord, let's just say, open our eyes, Lord, to behold wondrous things from your words, from your law, from your precepts. Lord, we want to see and we recognize we need the help of your spirit in order to see. So as we hear, give us ears to hear. Open wide our hearts to receive. And Spirit of God, would you, in just a remarkable way, in the way that only you can do, sow, sow these words into our lives to produce fruit and change and growth and strength and peace and joy in each one of our souls so that you would be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. The Old Testament history of the nation of Israel, the people of God, there is a lot to teach us all to this day about the Christian life. We can read about Israel's history and learn much about what it means to be the people of God, uh, what it looks like to live the Christian life. In Psalm 106, we're given a, a sort of history of Israel's failings along with a record of God's steadfast love. I'm just going to give you a quick overview. So we're not in Psalm 106, we're in Psalm 119, but so just by way of introduction, in Psalm 106, when God's people were in Egypt, they did not consider the wondrous works of the Lord, yet he saved them for his namesake. But after that, they forgot and had a craving in the desert, but God still provided for them. Some were jealous of Moses. Then they made a golden calf to worship in place of the Lord. Then they despised the pleasant land that the Lord gave them, and they complained. They yoked themselves to a false god named Baal, and on and on goes the story, the account of their history. And yet, in verse 40, 44 of Psalm 106, it says, nevertheless, he looked upon their distress when he heard their cry. For their sake, he remembered his covenant and relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. I, I want to make a simple, albeit obvious point to you this afternoon. We have a continual need for God's grace. We need God's grace again today. You needed it yesterday. You need it today. You will need it again tomorrow. You and I, we the people of God, we, we live in a state of constantly, regularly being in need of God's grace. We know God's grace in a profound way when we first become a Christian. And if you're here this afternoon and you're, you're not a Christian, we've been praying for you. We've been praying for your eyes to be open and that you would have this sort of miraculous beginning of seeing things that maybe you've heard a hundred times, but now you see it for the first time. 
This reality of the steadfast love of God for you. It's an amazing encounter. It's an amazing moment in anyone's life. Most of us in the room mark it as the most significant thing that has ever happened to us in this life. But it's not uncommon to make the mistake of somehow thinking that after that takes place, once we become a Christian, that truth is less relevant and less needed, and we're moving on to something else, somewhere else. But God's grace can never diminish in our lives, and our need for his grace never diminishes. In fact, true spiritual growth involves actually realizing this dependence for his steadfast love more and more. So your need for it doesn't change. But as we grow in faith, as we mature as Christians, we realize it more. And we realize the truth of our dependence upon it more and more. The key to growing in our faith and enduring well and finishing well is to learn the value and develop the practice of crying out to know the steadfast love of our God. Our text in Psalm 119 gives us a prayer for this very thing. Let's read it together I'm in verse 41. Next eight verses, Psalm 119, verse 41. Let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. Then shall I have an answer for him who taunts me, for I trust in your word. And take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for my hope is in your rules. I will keep your law continually forever and ever, and I shall walk in a wide place, for I have sought your precepts. I will also speak of your testimonies before kings and shall not be put to shame. For I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. I will lift up my hands toward your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. The hope in this series through Psalm 119 is as we delve into each section of it, that each one, each section, each section of eight verses would provide for you, do something for you, instill something into you that would enhance and stick in your prayer life. It's a prayer. In other words, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. I, I hope you never forget that phrase. I hope that phrase comes out often each time you sit down, open your Bible, and get before the Lord. That you, that's your prayer. That's sort of like inside your soul. Now, oh Lord, now I know. Open my eyes that I might behold wondrous things out of your law. Give me life according to your word. I tackled this one last week. I, I hope this settles in as part of your prayer life in your soul. Oh Lord, give me life. Not the kind of life I'm dreaming of. No, give me life, Lord, according to your word. And today, this afternoon, here it is. Let your steadfast love come to me. I hope that phrase 
locks into your soul, that you pray it often, that you live with that cry in your heart. Let your steadfast love come to me. The Christian life consists, exists in a constant need of knowing the steadfast love of God. And when we do, we thrive. When you do, when you know it, when it comes to you, the steadfast love of God, you thrive. I thrive. We thrive. I'm going to break down the section like this. First, what we need. Second, why we need it. And third, how it works. First point, what we need. Okay, this is the sixth section in Psalm 119. We told you it's an acrostic poem of the Hebrew alphabet. And so this is the sixth letter of the Hebrew alphabet, the V or the Vav, as they say in the Hebrew. Each verse begins with this letter. Every verse in here begins with that letter. But in the Hebrew alphabet, the, the, the Vav is actually like a word. It's a conjunction. And so it begins with and. They start this section. Each verse starts with and. Now, we wouldn't do this in English. That doesn't usually make much sense. It's pretty rare that you can start a sentence with a conjunction like that. But in, in Hebrew, it really does have meaning. Like every conjunction, it is connecting things together. But if you start the sentence with and, you're like, connected to what? There's nothing to connect it to. So there's, a, there's an assumption going on. Alec Montier, one of the commentators, writes it like this. And is not used insignificantly. It joins together things that belong together. The and introducing the opening in verse 41 indicates that in every situation of life, there is always this extra component, Yahweh's changeless love, issuing in salvation, backed by his work of promise. Here's my point. He starts with this conjunction of and. Let your steadfast love, and let your steadfast love come to me. Meaning, you need God's steadfast love in every situation, in every day of your life, and whatever, and this morning, and this afternoon, and tomorrow, and whatever's going on in your life, and whatever situation you're in, and, oh, Lord, let your steadfast love come to me. I need it in this situation. I need it in that situation. I need it yesterday. I need it today. I will need it tomorrow. Let it come. Lord, in all of life, let your steadfast love come to me. John Calvin sort of restates the verse like this, something like, oh, Lord, declare to me that the promise you have made to me to do me so much good will not be in vain. And so you will indeed make me know that your word and promise is most certain and true. I need to know this today. I knew it yesterday. I knew it when I first got saved. I knew it when I became a Christian. I'm waking up today again, and I'm here Sunday afternoon saying, Lord, I need it again. And conjunction together, I need the Lord's steadfast love I need it to come now. 
steadfast love. That word in the Hebrew is actually known as one of the most significant and most important words in the Bible. Chesed in Hebrew. It's been rendered different ways throughout the Bible. Mercy, kindness, goodness, loving kindness, and here, steadfast love. Now, in its most comprehensive meaning and understanding, it refers to God's covenant love, the promised love of God that saves us. In other words, chesed, God's steadfast love, is kind of like the wedding vows. It's the promise. It's the thing that you base the marriage on. It was the starting point that's supposed to continue. No doubt you've all heard about the husband who never told his wife that he loved her. And she said, why won't you ever tell me that you love me? And he said, well, I, I told you at our wedding that I loved you, and I'll let you know if I change my mind. Not good enough. What's her point? I need this every day. I need to hear this, know this. This is an ongoing thing. It's not a statement of the past. This phrase, as we focus it down to God's covenant love, does then ultimately point us to Christ and his gospel. This is the climax, the ultimate, the focal point of God's steadfast love came at a point in history where Christ came and laid down his life. God's steadfast love is ultimately and most clearly expressed in Jesus and in his gospel. Paul, writing familiar words that I know you know, now I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you're being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain... For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. We see both God's glory and God's power at its greatest strength when we see Jesus and his gospel. When your eyes are open to behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and you comprehend this wonderful good news truth that he gave himself for you because of the love of the Father for you, that he laid down his life for you, your eyes are opened and you are beholding the steadfast love of God. Milton Vincent, in his gospel primer for Christians, learning to see the glories of God's love, he writes this, outside of heaven, the power of God in its highest density is found inside the gospel. This must be so, for the Bible twice describes the gospel as the power of God. Nothing else in all of scripture is ever described in this way except for the person of Jesus Christ. Such a description indicates that the gospel is not only powerful, but that it is the ultimate entity in which God's power resides and does its greatest work. Indeed, God's power is seen in erupting volcanoes, 
in the unimaginably hot boil of our massive sun, and in the lightning speed of a recently discovered star seen streaking through the heavens at 1.5 million miles per hour. Yet in Scripture, such wonders are never labeled the power of God. How powerful then must the gospel be that would merit such a title? And how great is the salvation it could accomplish in my life if I would only embrace it by faith and give it a central place in my thoughts each day? I don't know if you have this book. You need to have this book. Who does not have this book? You, this is like the book that needs to be on your nightstand, on your coffee table, in your office, in your glove compartment. This is a little book you can pick up anytime, read a paragraph, and feed on it. You can do your daily devotions through this book. Who needs this book? Does everybody have it? Okay, they're going. I've got five of them here. If you need to know the steadfast love of God regularly, and you do, this tool, I can't think of a better tool to help you do that. Jamie, was that a hand? Kind of, yeah. Another one, another one. All right. Going, going, going. Good job. Change your life. (laughs) Change your life with that book. Wonderful, wonderful tool for you. Let me qualify what I'm saying here and what I'm not. I'm, I'm not saying that God does nothing but give us Jesus in order to give us entry into the kingdom, as if to say, I will give you Jesus and not a penny more. That's all you get. That's not what I'm saying. In fact, from the divine perspective, what God is saying, that what I'm giving you in Christ is then giving you all things. I'm giving you Christ so that the door can be open for you to enter in and receive all things from me. I want to give you all things. I want to bestow upon you my entire kingdom. I want you to, I want you to be an inheritor of, of all that I am and all that I have, and I'm doing that by giving you my son. So he is the doorway and the entry way for us to step into all that God has for us. All the promises of God find their yes. Where? In him, in Christ. All the promises of God are yours in Christ. They're not yours outside of Christ, okay? You're, you're wasting your breath claiming promises of God outside of Christ. But what he's saying is, I'm giving you my son so that when you come in Christ, now you have access, and now you have all things. On the other side of that coin, on the receiving end, from your perspective and my perspective, when we receive Christ, when we have Christ, when we comprehend this glory of the gospel, we find ourselves saying that, well, if this were all we received from Christ, it would be more than enough. I, would be, I am more than satisfied with having Christ and Christ alone. It is so good and so powerful and so rich and so satisfying I need nothing beyond it. And if I spend the rest of my life with nothing more than Christ, I've finished my life completely satisfied. Well, here's the point. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. Apparently, Jerry Bridges wasn't the first one to come up with this concept because it's here in our psalm. 
Oh, Lord, let your steadfast love come again today. And tomorrow, let your steadfast love come. I needed it then. I need it again. This is the prayer. This is the cry coming from this psalmist's heart. In other words, friends, we pray, Lord, help me approach each day, every situation, in full awareness of your covenant promise of love that was ultimately expressed in Jesus, in his life, his death, his resurrection. This is what I need. Point number one, this is what I need. I need to approach my life with this awareness of the steadfast love of God. I can face anything. I can enter into anything. I can endure through anything if I enter into it with this awareness, the steadfast love of God. Why we need it. Now, it might be easy to just hear this point so far and just think, well, simply for our own well-being. I, I need this. I want to feel good, be good, walk the Christian life. But I'm going to draw out a couple things from this section of the psalm that might be a little bit surprising. This psalmist actually looks and sees kingdom purpose and mission behind this prayer to see and know God's glory. Lord, let your steadfast love come to me because then I will be able to answer those who taunt me. People who oppose me. So trouble is promised to all who believe. You've heard us say this. You're probably all too familiar. Daryl Bach writes this in his book, Cultural Intelligence. Scripture has made it clear from the beginning that people of faith would always be a remnant within society and that to follow Jesus would mean experiencing pushback from the world. To taunt, to be treated with contempt, to look down on, to ridicule. To be taunted is difficult. I think we can all agree it's really difficult when people disapprove of us. When people don't like us, look down on us. With an eye-rolling, sarcastic, oh, why don't you pray? Go ahead, go talk to your imaginary friend. Or make some bizarre assumption that religion is really the cause of all the real trouble in the world. And there we sit. There you sit. How does that make you feel? Small? Belittled? Ridiculed? We know all too well how powerful the opinions of others can be on our soul. How it feels to be on the receiving end of ridicule and taunting. It is not easy. So what do you need? Okay, some, how about some assertiveness training? How about we work on you developing a thicker skin? How about we do a little Bible study on the fear of man and help you overcome how you feel when you're being taunted and ridiculed? Well, yes, maybe all of the above might be wonderful things, but how about this? How about what this psalmist is praying for? Oh, Lord, let your steadfast love come to me. Because he's connecting those two things. 
I can be unfazed by being taunted and ridiculed. Why? How? Oh, because in my soul, I am sure of his steadfast love for me. That's where he goes. That's what he connects to. Lord, show me what is greater, even what is greatest, in order to embolden me against what is so much less, the opinions of others. To know that God's love for me was so great that he was willing to pay the highest cost in order to deal with my greatest need, that I might know this great love that he has for me. This is the kind of thing that bolsters inside our soul. Well, if God is for me, who can be against me? Well, if God has declared me righteous, when in the world do I care what you think about me? Why would anybody else's opinion control me and bring me down when it's God's opinion has lifted me up and declared me to be something beyond my wildest dreams that I could ever achieve on my own, yet he gives it to me in this gift of his grace. The Bible actually has a lot to say then about once we have this in our soul, how we interact with the world around us. I'd like to just quickly hit a couple, few bullet points and just say to you some familiar scriptures to, in a sense, mold and shape what happens when the gospel really gets hold in your soul. And what I'm saying is it, it bolsters and emboldens and strengthens you to stand against ridicule, against taunting, against opposition. But, but how? In, in, in what way? That's what I want to give you this quick list about because the scriptures speak to it in several ways. Ephesians 6 says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities, against cosmic powers over the present darkness, against spiritual forces. In other words, people are not the enemy. They're the goal. Okay, so when you see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and your soul is emboldened, you're ready to stand and stand strong and even against opposition, let's think, what does that look like? Well, you go into that realizing, uh, these people are not my enemy. Those people are actually the goal, the objective here. First Peter 3, have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Be more controlled by Christ's place in your hearts than what others think about you. Don't be afraid of them. Honor Christ. Know who Christ is. Know who Christ has called you to be. Colossians 4, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with fault, salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Every person, every situation is unique. Use wisdom in order to impart grace to those you're interacting with. Galatians 6, so then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Okay, how, when you're emboldened with God's steadfast love and you're able to stand, how do you just, well, the aim is the good of others, all others. 
I'm in this. I'm standing strong, resisting this ridicule. But what, what is my aim? My aim is their good, the good of others. 2 Corinthians 5, 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Okay, once you're emboldened, is it just to maintain self-composure? Oh, no, you are emboldened so that you can be an ambassador. You are there on somebody else's behalf, making an appeal. God has filled you with his steadfast love to strengthen and embolden you so that you can stand there and make his appeal to them. Be reconciled to God. 2 Timothy 2, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Listen, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. We interact with others who oppose us with the hope of their repentance. Okay, do you see, first it is the gospel that emboldens and strengthens us to stand against opposition. It is also the gospel that shapes our attitude and our heart towards and indicates how we're to respond, how we're going to interact, with what aim do we have in standing strong for the Lord. The psalmist also said, and I will also speak your testimonies before kings, before kings. What is meant by the idea of saying, I'm going to speak your testimonies before kings? Now, for the apostle Paul, that was a literal calling of God. God had saved him and told him, I want you to speak before kings. He was in the middle of a shipwreck. And right about the time, it seemed completely obvious to everybody that everybody was going to die in this shipwreck. An angel shows up and talks to him and says, don't worry about it. It's going to be okay. You know why it's going to be okay? You know why everybody's going to survive this shipwreck? Because I want you to go talk to Caesar. I want you to stand before kings. Paul was opposed, threatened, arrested, beaten, imprisoned. But through all this, he stood before kings to testify to the gospel. Jesus told this to all his disciples in Matthew chapter 10. I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. You'll be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Proverbs 22:29 says, do you see a man who's skillful in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. Okay? When you get good at something, when you develop some skill, you hone your skill, you work at it, you progress, and you reach a level, people begin to notice. The proverb is just, stating this principle of life. It's like when you really get outstanding in your field, you will stand before prominent people. They will notice your craft, your skill, what you've developed. Well, so it is with the grace of God 
in your life. Listen, the more you and I truly become gospel-centered, where we are growing and maturing in our spiritual faith to the point that the gospel is functioning in our lives with a sense of skill and, and ease because, because we've gone through the gospel primer and we've read it through our devotional life and we really are getting this down and we're really starting to understand about the steadfast love of the Father. It's becoming a deeply ingrained concept about this covenant love that God has for us. It begins to shape us and mature us. God has given this grace to you and to me because he has an audience in mind for you to tell. A king? Maybe. A neighbor? A friend? A co-worker? Extended family? Do you see the, the correlation? The psalmist is saying, Lord, I need you to show me your steadfast love because as you show me your steadfast love, you are going to work through me to show others, to tell others. Lord, as I learn your testimonies, as I learn about who you are, I'm going to stand before kings. I'm going to stand before others. I'm going to speak what you have done in my heart. Last point, how it works. The psalmist makes the statement that I shall walk in a wide place. Now, a wide or broad place is really an expression that is referring to a kind of ease and freedom. Okay, it's not just more square footage. I have room to spread out. Got more place for my stuff. I've got a larger house or whatever. No, uh, to be in a wide place, he's, he's, it's, it's talking about I'm in a place where there's, there's like a real freedom. Now, some of you are musicians. Some of you are athletes. Many of you have, have really honed some, some unique skills in your life. If you're in any of these categories, you, you, you know sort of the routine. You're learning an instrument, learning an art, learning a sport. You practice, you practice, and something's driving you and you practice hard. And you practice sometimes beyond what feels like your ability. It stretches you, you invest yourself, but you continue to grow in this skill. I remember as a young man, early in my drumming adventure, going to see Buddy Rich play the drums. And it was extremely discouraging. The gap of what I saw and, and observed and what I could even comprehend myself doing was, was massive. He had worked for so long and so hard. He had what the Bible here is talking about as a wide place. He had a freedom. He had a freedom with those sticks, with all his limbs. The speed was, I mean, it's, it's really, it's not easily comprehensible how fast he was. 
he could play anything at any speed. He had so much freedom because he had developed that skill. And as he developed it, the more it was developed, the more freedom he had. For someone who is truly gospel-centered, to walk in a wide place, to walk in a kind of freedom, it, it is to have the gospel function in our lives with a kind of ease. And don't misunderstand. I don't mean to say that the Christian life gets easier the further you go. It, it, it doesn't. I can assure you, the old man dies just as hard at 60 as he did at 22. I, I don't mean to say Christianity gets easier. But as we mature and as we say, Lord, let your steadfast love come to me. And it does. And it does again and again. And we really become to, to tune in and comprehend and know and experience and encounter the steadfast love of God. Forgiveness happens. Gracious speech comes out. Resentments go away. There is, a, there is a, a kind of ease in living out the gospel. The gospel begins to function more and more in our lives. Why? Because we're, we're, we're just we're getting so good and we're getting so better. No, it's because we're beholding something of the glory of God. And we mature in seeing it more and more clearly. And the more it fills our vision, the more it begins to change our lives. Okay, what happens? Maybe many of us could relate to this a little bit more easily. What happens when we lose sight of God's steadfast love? Now that I can relate to. That, now I know what you're talking about. We slow down. We become discouraged. We withdraw. Forgiveness is hard. Serving is fatiguing. We lose all spiritual vibrancy. Doubts slow us down. Doubts stick and turn into unbelief. We know what it's like when we don't wake up and say, Oh, come, Lord, show me your steadfast love. Let it, let it come to me. In fact, I can't remember the last time the steadfast love of God came to me. And in what kind of frame and state is my soul today? Oh, it's slow. It's lethargic. Forgiveness is hard, almost incomprehensible. I can't overcome this bitterness. Fear has gripped me. I'm, I'm just paralyzed in fear. But when the steadfast love of the Lord comes to us, we begin again to walk in a wide place. The freedom begins to come. The joy gets restored. There's two things about the results of this, how it works. Walking in a wide place, and then the psalmist makes this statement, I find my delight. Find my delight in God's commandments. This was my hope that would be the primary theme throughout this entire series in Psalm 119. 
that we would truly find our delight in what God has said in his word, in his written word, in his living word, in the steadfast love of God. This would be the place of our delight. In the educational world, we came across a concept called delight-directed learning. The concept goes something like this. Find out what the child delights in and utilize that delight to teach them all kinds of things. So it doesn't really matter if it was baseball or lizards or cooking, whatever it might be. If there's some delight there, you've got an inroad. And you can teach them math and science and history and all kinds of things once you get a hold of their delight. Because if you've got their delight, you've got their attention and their engagement, and then they're ready to learn. Without that, fractions, long division, boring history. Why are you telling me these dates? I don't care about that king. I don't care about that empire. It makes no difference to me. It's just all drudgery. All my education is, I don't even know what it's for. But when you find the delight, the learning begins. The heart is opened up. The mind is opened up. The eagerness is there. The energy is there. There is a connection between our desires and our will. It is extremely strong, if not inseparable. This is sort of Jonathan Edwards' whole theology. I mean, the, the thing that you want is the, is the thing that you want, and the thing that you want controls your will. If you perceive something that is in your supposed best interest, that's where your will is going to go. Your will will be captivated by your desires. Okay, so let me ask you about your religion, your practice of faith. Is it at all connected to your desires? We probably have all been there at some point in our lives. Okay, I know I should go to church. I don't really want to go to church. I know I should read my Bible. It's a good thing to read my Bible. I should read my Bible. I don't really like reading my Bible. There's a lot of other things that I do really like, and I would much gladly give myself to some other things, but I know I should do this, and I know I should pray. How often is our whole religion, our aspect of our faith, our lives of faith, our, our walk of faith somehow separated from our delight? Why would that be? Why wouldn't we truly delight in the things of God? I think the answer is maybe embarrassingly simple because we don't really see the steadfast love of God. 
Okay, you saw it yesterday. All right, you saw it 10 years ago. Changed your life 25 years ago. But today, and, and, Vav, sixth letter, today, in this situation, let your steadfast love come today, right now, here and now, in this situation. This is what I need. Because when your steadfast love comes to me, when the gospel of God, the covenant love of God makes its way to my soul, and I find my delight in what you've said. Okay, I'm closing. Worship team, if you want to come on up. Can I just ask you again, what's the current state of your spiritual health and your spiritual strength? Would it be characterized by delight or would you have to characterize it as somewhat drudgery? Can I ask you now that we have some definitions, are you currently walking in a wide place? You're walking in a real kind of gospel freedom, exercising the gifts of God's grace more freely, or is it restricted and narrow and confining and limited? Are you too quiet because you're too afraid? Don't, don't put me in front of my neighbor, let alone a king. Because I've got nothing inside to embolden me for that. You and I desperately need each day to know the steadfast love of God. We need to see what only God can show us. Okay, I'm kind of joking about the book. Okay, you're not going to get it from reading Milton's book. But he'll lead you to it. But you need God's spirit to open your eyes. You really do need, and I hope at this moment, you desire and long for to see and know the steadfast love of God. And so, could we add this to our prayer list? Could we add this phrase to our heart before the Lord? Could we say regularly, Lord, open my eyes? Could we say often, Lord, give me life? And could we add to the list, may your steadfast love come to me.